You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. My name is Kathy Biasse, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, I'd like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex, and welcome back. Thank you so much, Kathy, and good morning to our listeners as well. You're just coming off of a, a week-long trip in New York. How was it? It was uh, very eye-opening. The buildings were very, very tall, for one thing. <laughs> very tall. <laughs> yes, um, that's putting it lightly, but I really enjoyed quite a bit. I ended up going to see a couple of Broadway shows ah, as well. what did you see? I went to see The Ferryman and also Kinky Boots. Oh, I've seen Kinky Boots. I haven't seen The Ferryman. Oh, okay, well, I really enjoyed Kinky Boots for sure. There was a lot of um, uh, transitions on the stage mm-hmm. and it was very seamless, which is quite impressive from mm-hmm. my perspective anyway. Wow, I, that's not, never something that I've thought about. So you you seem to be, uh, you like the shows? Do you go often? or? Well, um I, I try to, try but to. I, I think now that I've gone to a couple in New York, I'm more inclined to go and see more in Toronto when they when they do. Mm-hmm. And that was your first time in New York? Yes, it was. It was my first time. I also uh, went to uh, see the Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. and also we went to the 9-11 Museum. The, the new Peace Tower that's there? Right. It was it was really a somber ex- experience in a sense, like, but... It was memorable. Yeah. It just brought back a lot of memories and it was, for me, it was a very prayerful experience for me. I know how you feel. We, um, when my kids graduated from grade eight, one of the things, I think everyone should see New York once. We we took our kids to see New York. So um, we have four kids. So we went four times doing different things. But my first trip was uh, in night. I can't remember the date when my son graduated, but it was about a year after um, the 9-11 event. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Uh, some something like that, but anyways, the hole was still in the ground. So as the kids graduated, we saw the progression of, um, you know, how they transformed the site. And it is, it is something so fresh. It's, it's still so fresh. I remember uh, where I was exactly when it happened. So I think it's a... I think a, we all do. I think, yeah, well, yeah. of this age, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's uh, a great place for, for you to go and get a piece of history and really feel a part of uh, how New York is growing and how it's still recovering, I think. So I'm glad you had a great trip. It's good to have you back in the booth. I did, and thank you so much. Um, our show today is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. 
Please do follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and our handle is at the Health Hub RMC on all three. And as always, feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca if you have any show requests, if you have further questions from the show that you would like answered, contact information, anything you like that perhaps wasn't provided or you missed in the show when you were listening live, feel free to email us at, um, at thh at radiomaria.ca. Also do note that um, our shows are transformed into podcasts very quickly after the shows are, are the live shows are done. So please subscribe to our podcast. We are simply called The Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. You can also find our podcasts on the Radio Maria website, which is www.radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is www.kathybiasse.com. And feel free to leave a positive comment if you like what you hear. Our show last week, The End of Alzheimer's with Dr. Thomas Lewis, is up and ready for you to listen to. Lots of interesting conversation in in that show, so do, do take a listen and let us know what you think. So today I wanted to broach and cover just a, a small bit of the topic of magnesium and magnesium deficiency. And this is generally, you know, this is going to be in broad scopes, broad sweeps. So hopefully um, it'll bring some awareness to you about the vital importance of magnesium. And it is a mineral that many of us are deficient in. And because magnesium is a cofactor in you know, more than 300 enzyme systems that regulate so many important body functions, it is important to understand that and to um, get the magnesium that we need on a daily basis. Now, the reason why, you know, there are three main, main reasons. And again, we have to do this on a broad sweep, so we only have a few minutes here, but it's enough to at least give you some information to, to dig deeper into this area. But the main reasons are uh, for for our magnesium deficiency, are are the soils are depleted. Um, that's one big thing. Our soils are depleted of a lot of essential minerals that our body does need. So with that comes lower magnesium available to us. Poor diet, we get magnesium from several whole foods. So poor diet is uh, another contributor of magnesium deficiency. And another big one is stress. And we, most of us have that in our lives in some way, shape, or form. So three basic and main reasons why we are deficient in magnesium. And just again, broad sweeps. Some of the things that magnesium, main things that magnesium does, it regulates calcium. So for strong, healthy bones, you need adequate magnesium. Very important it helps to relax our skeletal muscles, so it helps relieve muscle cramping. Uh, that is one sign and symptom that we're going to go over briefly of magnesium deficiency, uh, restless leg syndrome, pain, muscle cramping. Um, you know, all can be a symptom of magnesium deficiency. Magnesium is very important for energy production. And as mentioned, um, with over 300 different um, uh, applications of magnesium. Energy production is is a key one. Uh, we could go really deep into the Krebs cycle and its, and its uh, implications there, but just know that uh, lack of magnesium can decrease our energy level. It also helps to regulate heart contractability and contract. It works works in um, the functioning of our heart. 
it's very important for our heart health, which will come into play a little bit uh, today in our conversation. And it relaxes our smooth muscles. So important for energy and important for relaxing. And magnesium is also critical for our insulin receptors to function properly. So if we want to help maintain a good blood sugar regulation, help, um, you know, we don't want those spikes in blood sugar. We've gone over this a lot of times. But magnesium is important for the receptors to function properly, the insulin receptors to function properly. Also high insulin levels, so sort of the flip side of that, high insulin levels can increase the amount of urinary magnesium that's excreted. So blood, pre- or blood uh, sugar, again, a very important thing to, uh, to regulate in our system. And let's just go over a few signs and symptoms that you may be magnesium deficient. So we mentioned just a second ago, or I mentioned just a second ago, muscle spasms and cramps, a lack of magnesium can cause your muscles to cramp. Uh, Magnesium can exacerbate anxiety and depression. So I'm not saying that it is the cause of it, but it can exacerbate situations where there is anxiety or depression. Insufficient magnesium can be a contributor to high blood pressure. So that's, uh, that's uh, our topic today. So we are going to be talking about uh, chronobiology and hypertension. So magnesium has a role in uh, hypertension. Magnesium can also, uh, lack of magnesium can also contribute to tiredness. So tiredness, because it's involved in that uh, energy producing cycle. And on the flip side, it can also um, affect our sleep. It can be, cause us some, some insomnia. Magnesium plays a vital role in our central nervous system. So low magnesium can prevent our brains from relaxing. So many, many ways that you see magnesium in our system, the importance of magnesium needs to, uh, to be addressed with everybody. Adult men require about 400 to 420 milligrams of magnesium daily. This is the RDA, recommended daily allowances. And adult women require between 310 and 320 milligrams of magnesium today. You can find magnesium in many foods, uh, nuts, beans, green leafy vegetables are are a big one. And you can also supplement if necessary. So just uh, a little tidbit for you in case uh, you might want to go further into that and further into the very very strong importance of magnesium in our body. So on to our show topic today, chronobiology of hypertension. Dr. Michael Smolensky earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees from the University of Illinois. His training and expertise focus on the areas of chronobiology and the environmental and medical sciences. For 37 years, he was professor of environmental physiology in the Division of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Texas at Houston School of Public Health and was affiliated with the Sleep and Pulmonary Medicine Division of the University of Texas at Houston School of Medicine. Currently, he is adjunct professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Texas at Houston, visiting professor at University of Houston School of Pharmacy, Consultant to Sleep Medicine Fellows Program, McGovern School of Medicine, University of Texas at Houston Health Sciences Center, and President of the American Association for Medical Chronobiology and Chronotherapeutics. He is also a Fellow of the American Institute for Medical and Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Smolensky is a leader in the field of medical chronobiology. He founded and for 10 years directed the Memorial Hermann Center for Chronobiology and Chronotherapeutics in Houston, 
the first polyclinic to incorporate biological rhythm methods to diagnose and treat disease. He was founder and longtime co-editor of both Chronobiology International and the Annual Review of Chronopharmacology. He has organized or co-organized 10 international biological rhythm conferences. Dr. Smolensky is the author or co-author of more than 365 scientific and clinical journal articles and book chapters, books, and continuing education monographs for physicians, pharmacists, and academic scientists. He is also co-author with Lynn Lamberg of the popular book, The Body Clock Guide to Better Health. Dr. Smolensky is best known for his research on the chronobiology and chronotherapy of hypertension, heart disease, pulmonary disorders, and sleep. He is also an expert on the health effects of shift work and light at night exposure, and he has served as a consultant and advisor to governmental agencies in the U.S. and abroad. Learning points today will include what is the clinical definition of high blood pressure, does blood pressure exhibit predictable circadian rhythm, and is there an optimal time to take blood pressure medication? This and a lot more will be discussed with Dr. Smolensky when we return.
listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show is live today. If you'd like to call in, our phone number is 416-245-1534. Good morning, Dr. Smolensky, and welcome to the show. Good morning, Kathy. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well, thank you. I hope you're doing well as as well. I am. Thank you. Thank you. I think let's address the elephant in the room here because a lot of people may not even know uh, what chronobiology is and because that's a key piece of what we'll be talking about today. Maybe you can give us an understanding of chronobiology and why this topic has piqued your interest so much. Well, um, the, the word chronobiology comes from the Latin two words, chronos meaning time and bios meaning biology. So in putting that together, it is the study of the biological rhythms that we have in our body, and um, there are circadian rhythms. Those are rhythms circa about one day. There are higher frequency rhythms, and there are also longer rhythms of menstrual cycle length and the year, and even weekly rhythms. And to make a long story very short, our body is organized not only in space as an anatomy. When we look at each other, we know where the head should be, where the toes should be, and so forth. But our biology is also organized in time uh, with regard to the peaks and valleys of different biological functions um, over the 24 hours or other time periods, um, such as the menstrual cycle, in order to uh, optimize our biological efficiency and uh, repair and regeneration that's needed uh, to sustain life. So uh, how did I become interested in this field? Well, um, as a young student, I had been indoctrinated in the so-called philosophy or theory of homeostasis, homeo meaning same, and stasis meaning state in English. And um, this was based on early research by the French uh, famous um, physician Claude Bernard in France. And uh, during the middle 1800s, Claude Bernard wrote that biological functions are self-regulating as kind of a constancy of biological state. But he also wrote that there is also huge variability uh, in the biological state, but that somehow got neglected. So when I was in college uh, in my senior year, I was fully indoctrinated in homeostasis, that is the body is constant in its uh, more or less uh, biological processes. So you could sample at any time of the day or night or do diagnostic tests at any time of the day and night and pretty much expect to get the same findings. But I suddenly um, was exposed in a paragraph of a textbook about biological rhythms, and that threw me for a, as we say in the States, for a loop, because um, uh, I couldn't uh, deal with constancy and cyclicity at the same time. So I became very fascinated why there was such a a discord in the philosophy of biological regulation. And that led to my interest in chronobiology, biological rhythms, which led me to do research around the clock, taking blood samples and other measurements from volunteers as students, and then later in life uh, getting into the clinical area, and found that the biology is anything but constant, but more or less predictably in time variable over the 24 hours in women over the menstrual cycle, and both men and women over the year as well. 
if we look at uh, the day, we'll, we'll do the, the day sort of phases of ryth- rhythmicity right now. Um, mm-hmm. Do we all have the same clock? Are we all as humans, well, we operate under the same clock? Well, the, the answer to that is, is not quite. Uh, we all inherit a master biological clock in our brain. It's got a fancy name called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and it's uh, also uh, paired with the pineal gland, which uh, produces melatonin, but only melatonin at night. And through gene expression in the master clock and the circulation of, of um, melatonin only at night, it helps coordinate our biological, what we call, time structure. But some people inherit slightly different genetics and their clock runs slightly faster than 24 hours. And some people inherit uh, a genetic structure in their, in their biological clock, so their clock operates a little bit um, slower. That is, their clock has a longer period than 24 hours. So the we call the um, people um, who have uh, biological circadian clocks that have periods less than 24 hours. We tend to call those people larks or um, having, we call it a fancy name, chronotype. That is, those people tend to like to get up early in the morning uh, when not pressured to be at school, at work, at a specific time. And they like to go to bed a little bit earlier than the average person. And then on the other side of that coin, we have the so-called owls or late chronotypes. They love to stay up late at night, sometimes as late as 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and they love to sleep in late at night. So we all have circadian rhythms, but there are a few outliers, probably 5% or less of the population, that can be considered uh, extreme so-called larks or morning types and uh, or extreme uh, evening types or owls that it's sometimes referred to. Now, we want to sort of hone in on hypertension. That's what the show is is about. But can you give us some things, um, and then we'll get to the hypertension aspect, some things that people might be surprised about that our circadian rhythm greatly influences? Well, our circadian rhythms actually have... Um, a- an incredibly great influence on our daily activities. Um, uh, For example, um, uh, just uh, in terms of uh, athletic performance, if we look at performance that way, uh, we find that if we look at the Olympic performance and records, uh, most of those tend to be set in competitions that happen in the afternoon. If we look just at everyday life, uh, your ability to... um, respond to uh, stimuli, your reaction time, your cognitive performance, uh, your your risk of having an accident isn't the same in the morning, midday, and evening because you have circadian rhythms in your cognitive performance, your ability if you're in school to um, to, to uh, perform on uh, a test or um, uh, carry out or even to write, uh, if you're a writer, to write stories and to be creative. Uh, varies uh, by according to the the circadian time of your body and when you're asked to perform different functions. So um, it's part and parcel of of your biology. And in fact, even the uh, sleep-wake pattern that we all have is actually the most powerful example of the circadian rhythm. Uh, Human beings are a diurnal species, which means they they prefer to be awake during the day and be active, and they prefer to be sleeping 
during the darkness of night. Uh, that gets interrupted in shift work or permanent night work, and uh, that eventually causes havoc with our circadian organization, which uh, we have found leads to increased risk in the long term to uh, pathology and uh, increased risk for cardiovascular events, uh, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, etc., etc. Okay, now in the area of hypertension, let's focus in on that. You are you are doing some groundbreaking studies. You are doing some research into areas that um, need much attention, and let's get into that. So what is hypertension, and what have you found when we're talking about chronobiology and the area of hypertension? Um, well, th- this is itself is a whole program, but let me try to be as um, to the point as possible. Our, our, um, our knowledge and, and uh, concepts of what's normal and abnormal with regard to blood pressure is based on technology that's used in everyday clinical practice, uh, uh, that is to cuff uh, blood pressure, mercury, or other newer technology that measures blood pressure once a day. Uh, in the clinic by the doctor or the nurse, or sometimes we're doing it at home by buying our own blood pressure cuffs. And uh, so for long, we've been um, impressed uh, with the data taken only during the waking period uh, in generating what is normal versus abnormal. Uh, So I don't want to get into regular blood pressure levels that have been promulgated or or put forward by various um, elite groups of cardiologists or hypertensologists, but I will say that the database in which we've made decision versus what is normal versus abnormal is based on a small picture of our biology, and that is restricted to generally during the short period people are in the clinic or, as I say, when there's supplemented data from people taking their own blood pressure. And this technology that's now used in the clinic really dates back to the middle or end of the the 19th century uh, that uh, we're still using uh, really relatively old technology that's been perfected a little bit, but it's uh, still single-time-a-day measurements. Our own research, and I should give credit to the leader in this area, Dr. Ramon Hermida in Spain, who really uh, is the leader of our our group in doing uh, clinical outcomes research, this kind of research is based on using modern technology, which allows people to wear an ambulatory, ambulatory device. It's called an ambulatory blood pressure monitor, which is able to take blood pressure roughly at 15 to 20 minutes around the clock when you're awake and when you're sleeping. And to make a long story short, I've got a lot of long stories, mm-hmm. um, it turns out that the most meaningful blood pressure in terms of predicting somebody's risk to an eventual stroke or heart attack or heart failure or kidney disease or developing even type 2 diabetes is the sleep time blood pressure that has not been regularly researched in the past for its meaningfulness in in determining people's risk for cardiovascular disease and other diseases. Okay, so we're on the crux of something that's sort of shifting the way we need to look at hypertension. Let's back up a sec here and talk about the health consequences of hypertension and why understanding when to take our blood pressure reading is so vital. 
Uh, well, this is a critical question. The reason that so much attention is given to blood pressure in the clinical um, world uh, and, and doctors focus on it as a, as a vital sign is because it's well recognized that a person's blood pressure is directly related to the risk for developing future um, heart disease, their future risk of developing a stroke, their future risk of developing kidney disease, kidney failure, and, and other metabolic diseases. And so there has been great emphasis um, starting way back uh, in time, but I would say certainly since the studies that were carried out in Framingham, Connecticut, the, the so-called Framingham study that showed the relationship to blood pressure and development of, uh, in the future of these cardiovascular diseases. So the idea has been to focus on reducing blood pressure based on people's outcomes in these uh, population-based studies, but all those studies were based on single time a day, usually morning or afternoon blood pressures in determining people's risk and interventions by medical or medication treatment or lifestyle changes. Our studies um, started to look at not only blood pressure during the daytime, but during the nighttime, and our the, the information that I'll be presenting later in the program really is the result of two large studies involving in total over 25,000 patients who have been studied by so-called ambulatory 24-hour or even 48-hour ambulatory blood pressure measurements in terms of outcomes, um, in terms of uh, having a heart attack, blood uh, stroke, or even uh, developing heart failure or kidney disease. And, and this is uh, where we have new information, new insights on how to prevent these types of diseases more effectively than have been done in the past based on daytime measurements, uh, which uh, assumes that blood pressure is constant when it really is not. Okay, you've just given us a good segue here into a break. So what is so important that um, I think we need to focus on that I believe that you're going to be talking to us about a bit later is with the understanding that hypertension is such a predictor of chronic disease down the road, it's not only important that we understand what our blood pressure is, but it seems from what you're saying that when we take our blood pressure measurements is vital to understanding our most accurate blood pressure. So when we come back, we're going to understand a little bit more about what we're talking about here. Dr. Smolensky will present to us some of his research that really is groundbreaking. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. I woke up in darkness Surrounded by silence So where Where have I gone I woke to reality Losing its grip on me Oh where Where have I gone Cause I can see the before I see the sun
searched for you What took me so long I was looking outside As if love would ever want to hide I'm finding I was wrong Cause I can feel voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our handle is at the Health Hub RMC. And feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Now, Dr. Smolensky, Having given us an understanding now that our bodies have rhythms, coupled with what you have, you know, just talked about, about the, the rhythms of our blood pressure and what your research is starting to um, show the world, can you continue further with what you are now finding and discovering within your studies? Yes, I'll be very happy to. Uh, first of all, what we found um, to start out is that uh, just like... Uh, People differ in terms of their circadian uh, uh, time structure, like owls and larks. We find when we do large population studies with around-the-clock ambulatory blood pressure monitoring that there are people who, especially uh, younger people, and and this uh, is is true of most individuals when young, that their blood pressure 24-hour rhythm shows a so-called dipping pattern. In other words, the systolic blood pressure, which is the blood pressure which is uh, indicative of the pressure pressure in the blood vessels when your left ventricle contracts, that's the top number 
of your blood pressure uh, when you are given your blood pressure information. Um, this shows about a 20% variability that's predictable in time over the 24 hours. In most individuals, blood pressure is highest during the afternoon hours, early or late afternoon hours, and it's lowest during nighttime sleep. And so this is the pattern that we see in youth and in health. However, with aging and the development of different medical conditions, we see that a different pattern develops, which is um, indicative of greater risk to having a future heart attack, stroke, or developing renal disease. And that type of pattern is referred to a non-dipper or even rising pattern. And what do I mean by that? These are people whose blood pressure, instead of declining by 10 to 20% during nighttime sleep uh, compared to daytime levels, their blood pressure actually uh, is uh, equal to that or near equal to that of the daytime or actually even higher during sleep than it is during um, a daytime activity. Uh, we see this kind of pattern in individuals who are older than 55 to 60 years of age, so that maybe. 60 to 70% of such elderly, well, not really elderly, but let's say maturing patients uh, have a non-dipping pattern. In people who have diabetes, 60 to 70% or more of those types of individuals are likely to have a non-dipping pattern. These people who have um, sleep disorders, such as obstructive sleep uh, apnea or severe uh, insomnia or very short sleep patterns, are also likely to be prone to have um, non-dipping patterns, and also salt-sensitive individuals uh, are likely to have non-dipping patterns. So um, what we have found in our outcome trials, these large population-based studies, using around-the-clock ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, and might I say that we have integrated this type of new technology into primary care medicine. So part of the annual physical, every patient gets a, an around-the-clock monitoring where they wear this device around their daily activities, take it home, bring it back, and we play out the data. And so what we have found is those people who have a non-dipping blood pressure pattern or an elevated blood pressure during sleep compared to the normal dippers are at very much higher risk to developing a future stroke at an earlier age or heart attack or developing heart failure or other coronary heart disease or other cardiovascular diseases. So uh, the question is, how do we prevent this? Um, and, and our findings are not different than, than earlier findings. I should uh, inform the, the audience that over 15 years ago, an Irish uh, investigator named Dolan looked at ambulatory blood pressure monitoring of 5,000 patients and looked at um, their outcomes in terms of uh, coronary uh, 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 um, uh, um, pathology, heart attacks, uh, angi angina pectoris, and, and other uh, diseases, and found that, that, that the least accurate predictive um, uh, indicator was actually um, the daytime blood pressure taken in the clinic and it was the nighttime, more specifically sleep time blood pressure that was uh, indicative of one's risk of developing such an, a negative outcome. So our approach has been to find a way to 
reduce the risk of patients uh, of having an undesired and unfortunate cardiovascular disease or, or uh, incident um, that's, uh, that is potentially life-threatening. And that means that uh, we have started to focus on the sleep time blood pressure as a target of intervention with medications. Conventionally now, what doctors do in the clinic is mostly they take the blood pressure during the daytime, and the emphasis is reducing the daytime blood pressure by medications that are typically typically taken upon arising after sleep in the morning, uh, perhaps with breakfast or even before breakfast. Our emphasis has been to examine whether taking medication in the morning versus before bedtime makes a difference in terms of um, preserving, if you will, cardiovascular health, and that it means preventing heart attacks, strokes, heart failure, and other cardiovascular disease undesired outcomes. And we have found that by timing medications at bedtime versus timing medications as traditional in the morning that we can reduce in two large-scale studies that I mentioned before the break um, involving almost 25,000 patients, we can reduce approximately by 50% the number of people who know these kinds of uh, unfortunate life-threatening events or even life-taking events. Okay, so you're by just changing the timing of medication, I just want to reiterate to the, everybody, by changing the timing of medication, which in your field is called chronopharmacology? Well, it's, it's really uh, the study of medications and how the differences in behavior and effects uh, is called chronopharmacology uh, with regard to how do medications behave when taken in the morning, midday, and afternoon. Chrono meaning uh, the time of day influences on the pharmacology of medications. The actual implementation of the research is actually called either chronotherapy, that is using the information for therapeutic purposes, or even what we term now chronoprevention by timing medications at the right biological time to actually prevent disease outcomes uh, is what we're really after now. And I need to mention that we're not talking about time of day in terms of clock time. We're talking about, talking about timing medications to our biological or more specifically our circadian rhythms, knowing all the biological processes that are that are occurring that influencing influence uh, blood pressure, we can deliver medications at the right biological time to have their greatest impact on reducing, for example, certain hormones that influence blood pressure or the uh, contraction of blood, ve- blood vessels which show circadian rhythms so as to increase the relaxation and get maximum effects out of our medications by timing them properly to individual biological rhythms that influence uh, our, our blood pressure. So, in theory, people who need to take hypertensive medication, each individual could be written a prescription for the medication and their own individual prescription as to what time they should be taking that at. 
Um, this can this can be done. Um, basically, what one needs to do is uh, uh, well, what we need to do in medicine is to try to have incorporated ambulatory blood pressure monitoring as a routine procedure, uh, and then we would know each person's 24-hour blood pressure pattern and how to best approach it in terms of timing therapy. Unfortunately, in Canada and uh, the United States and in Europe and other large countries, ambulatory blood pressure is viewed as being too expensive to incorporate or too complicate, complicated to, comp, uh, to incorporate into medicine. As a matter of fact, we have actually done health economic studies and found that by incorporating ambulatory blood pressure monitoring in the clinical practice as a routine procedure, that we can save, in, in the case of European currency, billions of euros uh, because of preventing unneeded hospitalizations uh, for heart failure, for heart attacks, uh, strokes, and preventing deaths um, by uh, not only diagnosing blood pressure, uh, that is hypertension, correctly and whether uh, it's elevated during the day or during the night, but also timing appropriately to the body's circadian rhythms in blood pressure to optimize therapeutic benefit and thereby reduce the risk for cardiovascular event outcomes, that is, strokes and heart attacks and so forth. I'm not getting a clear picture of where the cost, where this is cost prohibitive. Um, does the medication itself need to be changed in order to give it application in a circadian? Now, the, the, real, the real costs come into um, the purchase of ambulatory blood pressure monitors, um, sufficient numbers to use in clinical medicine. It, it's it's a um, it seems to be, to me, a trivial argument because we use in the field of cardiology, uh, the field of medicine that deals with heart, um, heart disease, um, very often we're using uh, am uh, ambulatory monitoring of heart rate uh, or cardiac function called Holter monitoring, and this is incorporated into cardiology. We're now asking that uh, primary care medicine uh, incorporate ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, but the medical care institutions as well as government institutions view this as an unnecessary expense uh, that that shouldn't be put forward uh, because we can take blood pressure during the daytime with the regular cuff methods. And as I've already stated, this is an incomplete picture of a person's blood pressure we advocate, those in the field of uh, biological rhythm study in medicine, advocate using these 24-hour blood pressure monitors, and those do entail an initial upfront expenditure, but these devices last for as long as 7 to 10 years, can be used repeatedly over and over again, and so the initial cost gets uh, prorated over time, but more importantly for the patient, it prevents disease. It prevents hospitalization, and that's where the cost savings really come into and tip the, um, if you will, the, uh, the scales toward the, the advantage of using this new technology for disease prevention and hospital saving costs.
Well, I was just going to say prevention medic- is, is, is also key. We're not just talking about people that have had heart, heart disease or heart issues. This could be a key piece of prevention, which could, as you say, greatly reduce the cost burden in the health field. Yes, and in fact, this is the emphasis, is prevention. And that's why I said earlier I used the term chrono-prevention by teaming together, if you will, coupling together the -the around-the-clock ambulatory blood pressure monitoring technology with the knowledge we have that it, it makes a difference when people take their medications according to their circadian rhythms in the degree of efficiency of controlling blood pressure that we can actually deal very effectively in prevention of cardiovascular disease in a much greater fashion than currently done today based on assumption of constancy of blood pressure and also assumption that it doesn't make any difference when people take their medications because the concept that the effect will always be the same. This is based on the old concept from the 1860s of homeostasis, which um, unfortunately the only time we have real constancy in our biology is a state of death, not in life. Life is dynamic, it's cyclic, and uh, homeostasis may be an instant uh, picture of our biology, but it's not really a proper perspective of our biological processes and functioning. So this research, of course, has direct impact on, on the field that you're studying in hypertension, but theoretically it has impact in all disease because medication delivery and the timing of medication could be vital in any illness. Am I right about that or is that? You're, you're absolutely correct. It, it, it's uh, astonishing to me because I work with a lot of sleep medicine doctors who, who sometimes find it difficult to comprehend the concept of chronobiology and chronotherapy. And in reality, the first wide-scale use of chronotherapy is in sleep medicine. The prescription of sleep, sleeping medication, sleeping pills, if you will, uh, is taken in the evening uh, before intended sleep for the majority of individuals, unless they're, sleep, they're, they're shift workers and have to sleep at a different time. But people who are taking sleeping pills never take them when they get up in the morning. They take them at night to, to achieve a specific outcome, and that is a good night's sleep. And so there are a multitude of medications that are used if you, as chronotherapies without any knowledge that it's based on the body's circadian rhythms or, if you will, circadian time structure to optimize beneficial effects and desired outcomes. Or, if you will, even to avoid adverse effects or side effects of medications, which also are regulated by circadian rhythms in relationship to when we take certain types of medications. So this research that you have done is profound. And what are you doing now to further what you have already accomplished? Well, we, we are doing, when I say we, my colleagues, Ramon Armida in Spain and other colleagues here uh, in, in North America and also in South America, are, are approaching um, different uh, healthcare systems, um, uh, different clinical groups, and trying to incorporate, uh, if in the field of hypertension, for example, the incorporation of ambulatory blood pressure monitoring into clinical practice, as well as advocating sleep time uh, medication schedules for controlling 
uh, abnormal blood pressure during sleep that's detected by the around-the-clock blood pressure monitoring. Uh, we are continuing our research uh, uh, to um, expand upon our knowledge of the chronobiology, if you will, biological rhythms in various functions that give rise to the circadian or 24-hour patterns in blood pressure. So we have a better understanding of what medications work the best. And we have actually some information along those lines. We find that in our outcome studies that medications known as um, uh, angiotensin receptor blockers, or they're called ARBs for short, and angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, or ACEs in short, have their greatest, those are the most impactful medications when taken before bedtime in reducing risk for negative outcomes uh, in terms of uh, strokes, heart attacks, and heart failure, renal disease development, and even type 2 diabetes new onset cases. Now, just uh, before we have to end the show, I'm, I, I feel that I need to ask this question and uh, because I think you need to straighten the listeners out about this. Can people who are on this medication, just by listening to what you say, is it advisable just to switch the timing of when they're taking their medication? Or is that very medication specific or we're not at that point to say that yet? Well, um, I, I get this question quite a bit. And let me just say... Uh, one, the patients ought to um, discuss the, uh, the information that I'm talking about uh, with their own doctors. If their doctors are familiar, um, certainly I can provide um, for your website uh, and, and, and other means of communication, Internet-wise, uh, information that perhaps the doctor can look at uh, in publications in very well-respected heart journals and hypertension journals, um, for uh, being able to consult with the patient and support their change to a before-bedtime uh, therapeutic schedule. Thank you very much for that. It's uh, it's a profound area of study, and as, as you know, it's something that when we had our discussions before the show, it's something that I'm very, very interested in. I just think it's profound what you're doing. Your book is called, the book that you uh, co-authored with Lynn Lamberg is called The Body Clock Guide to Better Health. And for the listeners, this is a fascinating, easy-to-read great book to start your voyage into this area of health. And I do greatly encourage you. I refer to it often. I greatly encourage you to uh, to pick it up and have a read. Uh, Dr. Smolensky, I'd like to thank you very much for being on our show. I do appreciate the time that you've taken. And this is, uh, this is a profound area that I think really does need attention. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.